Good afternoon. <laughs> How's everyone doing? <coughs> woo! Somebody did a woo in the back. Um, I'm here to get us started on the flood model session. So if we can get rolling, um, we have four presenters today, and I'm going to stop between each one and introduce them. And if you guys can just hold your questions to the end so that we make sure we have enough time for everyone. Um, because I gave them a certain amount of time, they were allowed to speak and no more. Um, Nikolai with ABS is our first presenter, and he is on the software development team. He works on the flood model, which is the, the model that we're here for today, and he is going to talk about the technical aspect and tell you what's new with Hazus and the flood model, which you all know there's been changes between that and the hurricane because of the coastal storm surge. So I'll let him talk a little bit more about that. And if you would like to read in the program, you can read up on all his complicated degrees that are there, two masters, um, a BA, and I'm trying to talk him into a PhD. So there you go. Thank you, Margaret. You guys hear me? Where is this? Another microphone? I got two microphones. Oh, really? So I shouldn't be saying bad things here. All right, um, so this is going to be a pretty quick presentation um, on what we've been busy with the flood model development team since last conference. How many, how many of you, uh, what, can you guys see it? Oh. How, how many of you were at the Indianapolis conference last year? Uh, about all of us, okay, sounds good. All right, let's get started. So, here are some changes. Hazus now is Hazus as a trademark name. It's not an acronym. No more Mr. Nice Guy. So, no more MRs uh, starting with 2.0, which apparently is a major release. 2.00. We um, abandoned the nomenclature of MRs and MR actually stood for maintenance release, which was one point whatever the MR number was. So with this said, um, you see that the first major release uh, was uh, uh, the one that originally got released. The original has a image. So seven years later, we moved on to 2.0. Um, has this. 2.0 had two patches, uh, of course you can see the numbers 2.01, 2.02, and then 2.1, which in our opinion is also pretty major, but really is a minor bump, it's a 2.1, is in the works and will be released by the end of the uh, fiscal year. Okay, um, so I'm going to give you a little overview, even though some of you may already know this. We released the coastal surge model, by we I mean has uh, its development team, not just the flood. The hurricane uh, developers did the hazard integration with Slosh and Swan, and um, 
our team, the flood team, did the uh, combined analysis, and uh, we worked also on a, a transect wave propagation because the SWAN model uh, had some kinks um, um, wave propagation over land, so we have to use our existing coastal flood methodology for the waves. Uh, the next major bullet, um, oh, we just covered that, the wave height modeling um, took special um, attention for the surge model. Um, also in 2.0, we included a tool that's called HBR Extract. Some of you may have noticed that, that it, uh, there's a utils folder under Hazus MH. Um, has this image been FL? There's a utils folder where um, um, smaller utilities like this one and others um, make their way to the DVD. So, um, this HPRX chat was a precursor of the risk map database that is still in the works, and Shane could probably shed some light on that but yeah I mean basically the tool doesn't require existing houses just uh, it's sufficient for you to have plenty of HPRs one two however many they can actually work in a batch mode and um, extract the results and um, send them to a central database repository so pretty interesting tool Okay, moving on. Um, so in 2.0, also we added user depth grids, uh, multiple imports of user depth grids, allowing the user to model a flood suite of return periods using external tools. So um, that would allow H&H um, &H, uh, engineers who have good knowledge in Hackras or any other tools to import and um, simulate and analyze the suite and respectively an average annualized loss. So um, the next bullet is we replace the 200 year return period with a 25 um, uh, to accommodate the request of the PTS teams, Ramstar and Acom Baker. Uh, we also Supported a serious, uh, to be honest, around one third of the code that was written in C is supported for Visual Studio 10. The previous version was Visual Studio 6, so we, we've come across a number of issues, but they have been resolved and they are in 2.0. Um, added support for Esri RJS 10. For those of you who haven't started using RJS 10, it, it is different. And what we noticed is ESRI is um, is adding an extra. How to say it politically? Um, they're, they're being very strict about their licensing policies, about using um, their ARC objects 
out of process. So there's an additional licensing involved, not, not licensing, but APIs to ensure that you're not, that you authorize to use their software. So um, that led to a few issues. As some of you may know, uh, the tiny little utility called ShakeMap was written um, as an add-on utility um, tool for those of you who use uh, level two uh, earthquake analysis. So um, we discontinued that by here. The good news is that Eduardo Escalona from uh, the FEMA region four is willing to provide his version of it. So uh, hit him up. Okay, moving on. Um, the first patch, 2.01, um, had a few kinks ironed out with respect to the coastal surge model. So um, you can see the bullets here. Um, I don't know how technical we should get about this, but uh, I felt that um, you guys should know that there's a issues about the Louisiana shoreline and also technical details about a few of the bugs that have been resolved. The patch or service pack one, as we call it, is available for um, automatic patching. If you have an issue with the firewall at your organization, um, also the patch is available as an EXE. So you guys can get it and patch your system. Um, yeah, uh, I keep tracking the AAL analysis uh, remain disabled through all these releases since, since MR5. MR, uh, so the, the following patch two resolved an issue that just got released an issue with a crystal report synchronicity. The data was correct by the way we were reporting the data of the combined coastal search model loss was incorrect. AL still disabled. And here's the what's coming up now in a 2.1. So um, as one of our tasks, um, we added automation. Basically, for those of you who participated in the AAL study a couple years ago, it was really um, not annoying, but users really didn't feel like going through all the GUIs, wasting time on uh, message boxes and so on. So at the time, we had a quick and dirty compilation of the model where um, we um, hard-coded certain parameters and made uh, the houses back then run as unattended um, execution. So all the subsequent steps from creating the stream network all the way down to the results and sending the results to one central repository were automated. Now in this release, all that has been um, has been nicely exposed in a few dialogues that. Actually, in a couple of tabs that you can see under flood options, under customized flood options, you see that you have four tabs now. The 
third being automation and the fourth being repository. So these are all nicely exposed and users now can take advantage of automating the level one riverine analysis. Uh, why, why is Coastal left out? It's pretty simple. Um, there's no easy way to automate that because it requires user input in characterizing the shoreline and from there on it's just one click so so this is the answer to that you can see you, you will get this presentation so we're not going to cover the details and the parameters but just to quickly outline that you can automate single or sweep as you can see on this on this slide sweet and single return periods you can um, okay, you can specify the scenario name and all the other required parameters when you click on run automation the process will start with all the um, parameters that you enter and um, proceed through hazard analysis and um, uploading the results if you specify the SQL Server database instance and database name then the process would um, centrally um, insert the results of the run so also um, I'm really excited about these two fixes um, the riverine hydrology and hydraulics we um, got together with a flood riverine expert Ed Mifflin who originally wrote the prototype back in the days for um, RQ 3.0 and Avenue so we got together 10 years later and we were able to sit down and discuss certain issues and as a result um, we added more um, how to say uh, basically uh, the cross sections for all the return periods now are at the same location with adds the stability and predictability of the results and also it cuts down the processing time because uh, it's a one-time deal not five times for each return period um, this adds the issue of of what happens if uh, 100 year return period as part of the suite gets compared to the single 100 year period run and we don't have an answer to that yet we will be working in our next phase to see how we can um, how we can uh, resolve that issue um, Kevin Kiritakusama found a, a, a really significant bottleneck in the way access indexes and respectively um, slows down with with a larger size tables and a personal geodatabases so he was able to cleverly remove and repair such geodatabases which 
increase the processing time, which decreased the processing time, made it faster about three, four times, and that is a really exciting news. I strongly encourage you to give this build a chance and test drive it as soon as it becomes available. Um, we've also been busy with uh, pre-processing. How many of you remember that in the previous release we exposed the and values, this last column here. Sorry. I knew it. I shouldn't have moved. Okay. So the and values were pre-processed and exposed in a previous build as a 0 0.08, which is the national average. And as you can see, we... Um, uh, we uh, added um, land use land cover coverage in this release. Uh, we found studies that had the uh, uh, Manning's roughness coefficients for each land use land cover. We did some work on um, to distinguish between streams and lakes and ponds as they apparently have different roughness coefficients and as a whole the user is still allowed to change the specific reaches uh, roughness coefficient but you don't have to I mean it comes pre-populated and uh, I was just pointing out that the numbers now are whatever the that process determined to be Okay, moving on. So, with this release, also the flood model AL analysis is going to become enabled. Um, all the all the prior fixes that we just discussed and new features actually are going to take uh, are, are going to be taken into consideration for the AL analysis. Um, so we worked together with the earthquake and the hurricane teams to try to make the look and feel of the GUI identical, almost identical, where applicable. So uh, that, that was a common complaint by most uh, beginner users. So uh, if, if you're used to Hazus's uh, user interface, you'll find it slightly different than prior versions, but hopefully more intuitive. Um, on a technical side, Farpoint Spread 8 was um, added to this, Crystal Reports 11, ArcGIS 10, SP1, SP2, SQL Server 2008 R2, which is the current version of SQL Server, and um, support for Microsoft Windows 7, 64-bit machines. Uh, are we going to go with questions now? Do we have time? Okay. All right, then. That's it. I'm sorry about that. Okay, I'm going to let Jesse get wired up and get his presentation. His presentation geared up for you. Um, if he puts it in the shirt pocket, maybe he won't drop it on the floor. So. Uh, 
Jesse Rosell is from FEMA Region 8 in Denver, Colorado. He's a risk analyst there, and he has done his work at University of Colorado and gotten his GIS certification there as well. And he's going to talk more specifically about a state, and then the other folks here will present on different areas as well. So we're just going to go ahead and let him get started. Thank you, Margaret. So I'm going to talk today about some of the hazardous applications we've done with some recent flooding events in North Dakota. And uh, this is a picture of the flooding in Minot, North Dakota. This was taken um, June 28th. You might have seen this on the news. It was a pretty large event. There was a wide-scale levee overtopping, and um, we estimated approximately 4,100 structures were flooded with um, mild to, to heavy or catastrophic uh, flooding depths in this event. This is just an example of the uh, flooding this year from uh, the beginning of spring up all the way up until June. This is our disaster declaration map for North Dakota for these for this range of uh, dates and um, we commonly experience very wide-scale flooding up here uh, due to the, the flat terrain and high snow melt. And um, as you can see, almost most of the state was uh, flooded and impacted again in 2011. So what, what our goal was, was for um, the Minot, North Dakota event, it was to do a rapid turnaround damage assessment using HAZIS and um, remote sensing and other GIS methods. And we, we uh, used the uh, HAZIS user-defined site-specific module to do this because um, we feel like we can um, report out much higher accuracy damage assessment totals from that. And we also, in this event, we, we were lucky where we had um, prior collaboration with the Army Corps of Engineers, and they ran um, HECRAS hydrological models for every forecasted stream discharge amount and we are constantly being fed new Army Corps models and we could use those for the direct flood hazard input into the hazardous model. So we really just had to focus our efforts on the structure inventory and we, we had the benefit of, of having their expertise assistance with the H&H. &H. So some of the things that you need to do to analyze flood loss on a site-specific, which is structure by structure instead of aggregated statistical totals for census blocks, is you need a, a lot of attributes for each of those structures, such as um, foundation type, first floor heights, valuations for uh, the building for replacement costs, uh, specific occupancy, like whether or not it's a residential home, whether it's a commercial structure, and then also uh, further classifications inside of those categories. And usually what our intent is is to start with parcel or assessor's data to get those attributes, but for a lot of us who've worked with assessor's data in the past or, or parcel data, especially for small rural communities, a lot of the attributes available are, are kind of hit and miss. They're sometimes all over the place. Sometimes you're lucky to get square footage and building value, but um, it's real uncommon, or it's not very common for you to get foundation types and all the attributes required. So 
what we had to do was turn around in a real quick manner a, a rapid damage assessment of the entire city um, of all these structures that were impacted. And we did this through um, a few different tasks. Um, the first one that we assigned was uh, working with USGS, we did high water mark collections. And um, those are very time sensitive. So you, you really want to take high water mark collections um, right when you're at the peak of the flooding. And we also collected pictometry, oblique aerial imagery. And this oblique aerial imagery assisted us in gaining all of the required uh, building attributes for the loss assessment. And then in order to implement these building attributes collected from pictometry, um, we partnered up with a, a private firm um, called ImageCat and their subcontractor for New Light. And, uh, they were able to assist us with a large team of analysts to help out with the damage assessment portion. And um, they, they usually work on um, risk management types of projects for like, insurance, insurance firms. So um, they're really experienced with this type of, of work and their turnaround time was, was great. So the results that we wanted were primarily number of structures impacted. We could turn that around in-house um, in our FEMA office while we were set, setting up all the other tasks. But then for the hazardous site-specific derived financial impacts where we need all those extra attributes which is um, what took a little bit longer, but we were still able to turn all of this around in about a week, which was, um, which was really, really great. So to start off, uh, the first, uh, first, first task we, we did and was to get the USGS out in the field and get them gathering high water marks as quickly as possible. And this picture here is some of their um, RTK high uh, accuracy GPS equipment that they used to gather the high water marks. And some of our FEMA staff went with them as well. And our FEMA staff and then our USGS colleagues in the field also went around town and visually verified certain areas as well whether or not they were protected and dry and local flood protection measures held or whether or not um, they were compromised. Um, the next, next thing we got, got going was the pictometry oblique imagery. And I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with pictometry, but it's a really great product they have Right here, this picture is um, it's a shot of one of their sensors inside of uh, one of their planes. And what it does is actually takes uh, uh, normal straight down um, ortho photos, but also five angle oblique aerial photos as well. So for every flight path, flight path that they hit, they get five different oblique angled shots of, of all the structures in town. So these were the products that we came up with first. And the flooding areas that you can see here were uh, these, uh, these, these are uh, satellite imagery derived. So these, these also helped us to sort of flag, um, if you can see some of these orange areas, or like there's a sort of an orange uh, square in the middle of the water here. Those are some of our visually verified protected areas, areas that didn't get wet. 
So what we had to do was mask these out of the Army Corps inundation grids because um, some of their inundation grids would actually show some of these areas as, um, as wet because they didn't get to account for last minute local flood fighting efforts into their modeling. So in our end analysis, when we mask these out, we're not actually calculating losses for these areas and for some of these structures. And then some of these inset photos are examples of some of the pictometry shots here. And these are some of our key facilities in town. So we are able to share these with the locals, with uh, local government and uh, emergency responders um, so they know, um, you know that these, these buildings have all been flooded and we actually saw some of them that had not been compromised as well. And the different colors in all of these points here actually correspond to a depth at each structure. So these depths were attached to these points from the Army Corps hydrological models. So um, we could actually come up with uh, summaries of uh, various levels of depths at, um, and um, the levels of damage that would correspond with those depths, whether it be minor or moderately or completely damaged. And the rest of these are just some more um, snapshots as we move through town. Um, so you can see the dark area up here. There's huge neighborhoods impacted by this flooding event. But then also, this area up here in the top right, um, where all of the building locations are green, which meaning uh, in our map uh, a value of zero depth. So this area was actually protected by local flood fighting measures. And the original Army Corps models showed those as uh, being flooded at this discharge if those levees hadn't held. So once we visually verified those, we were able to mask those out and um, uh, not count those towards our damage estimates. And these are just a couple more snapshots. And this is the southeast part of town. So that was our, our preliminary phase of this project, and then what we had to do next was we actually had to equate the dollar loss to all of these buildings in, in town. So next we got ImageCAD started, and uh, what we first had to do was provide them with what we call our AOI, which is our area of interest for our study. Um, so we basically flagged all of the national grid cells in the town that were impacted by flooding um, from the Army Corps models and then also um, the, uh, from the satellite imagery so we could see where the flooding was so we could focus their efforts just on the parts of town that were impacted. Then they used the, the final Army Corps model but then with the, uh, the uh, protected areas masked out as their um, preliminary depths for all of the structures databases. So next they had to develop the, the very detailed um, structure exposure database um, using the pictometry and other sources and um, um, populate all those buildings with the required attributes to do the loss assessment. And we were able to throw them uh, a whole bunch of different sources. I think once we got them going they had about 
15 or 17 analysts working on this around the clock. Uh, we gave them the parcel data we had, the assessor's attributes, even though it was kind of spotty and had some attributes, didn't, you know, didn't have others. So they were able to pull everything together. They even used Google Earth in some instances where the pictometry couldn't get a good shot. And um, so next here, here's an example of how the pictometry came into play. And um, this was really helpful. So uh, one, one of the really important attributes when um, applying depth of damage functions to a building to estimate percentage loss, dollar loss, is foundation type. So a building with a basement or a crawl space or slab on grade, um, they all have different depth damage curves and functions um, and at different loss ratios to um, come at uh, the dollar loss, percentage loss. So they were able to look at each building and populate the uh, foundation, foundation type. And for instance, um, where in the past, you know, with ortho photos, you, you can't really see the side of the house, all you see is roofs. So this was really helpful. And here's another example of the uh, pictometry was helpful. Um, so if you're only looking at this house from the front, you might think that it only had uh, one story. But um, with the pictometry, it's actually got a pan tool. You can sort of turn the camera and then look at it from the, uh, the back of the house. And then when you see the house from behind, you can actually see it's got two stories. And these are just some of the other protocols that they took into account um, when they were uh, doing their assessment. And first floor elevation was really crucial. So the pictometry interface, they actually, um, this situation was unique also because Ward County, North Dakota, actually flew pictometry for their whole county in 2010. So we had uh, the advantage of being able to look at a before and after shot of, of each of these properties. So the pictometry interface actually has a measure tool that you can use. And the top left photo shows uh, they're measuring the height from the ground to the top of that door. And then in the bottom shot, they're measuring the height from the, top, from the uh, water surface to the top of the door. So they could actually use that to find the um, um, the water height for that structure. And this assessment was uh, helpful in our prioritization in the uh, uh, recovery phase. And it helped us to identify 12 key structures for a more in-depth analysis. So we were able to provide this to our, uh, our command staff and our responders and, and the locals of some of the priority structures that were heavily impacted um, that we might want to focus our efforts on. And um, some of them are also uh, private companies like uh, Holiday Inn, the Coca-Cola bottling, uh, bottling Company. But um, these actually have an impact on a small community like this because a lot of people work here and um, when they're impacted, it can affect the long-term economic recovery of a city like this.
And so here's an example of uh, one of the reports for one of these priority structures. Uh, this is the Holiday Inn uh, before and after shot. And you can see they tried to levy up around it here, but, um, uh, but the, the flood protection failed. But then they were able to populate with all of the required hazardous attributes also, so we could run losses on that bill. So then one of our uh, final products from this was um, a table of uh, damage assessment values. So you can see we've got roughly uh, $211 million in residential losses for this event here, which is pretty substantial for a small community like this, and $77 million in commercial and industrial losses here, and also uh, numbers of parcels impacted. And the number of numbers of parcels here up in the top left for residential is, is just the number of actual parcels, but some of these parcels included, like a, there was a, a mobile home park that had about 100 different mobile homes on one parcel. So um, we had to account for that too in our totals. So we've done the site-specific approach quite a bit in our region um, because especially if you have LIDAR and you have a really refined um, flood hazard input, um, the site-specific model can be quite a bit more accurate um, just based on, on a few different factors. And one case study that we've looked at in the past was for Fargo, North Dakota. And we had the benefit of having an engineered LIDAR-derived um, depth grid for this event as well. And this is the flooding extent for the city of Fargo in 2009. And the site-specific approach yielded drastically, drastically different results. As you see here, we had uh, 1 million versus 69 million on a census block level. And it's because of a, a couple different things. And you can see the, the uh, dollar exposure inventory you know, is a difference between 5.9, 7.47. It's quite a bit different, but it's not an order of magnitude different, like like the results that we came up with. And there's a, a couple things that can influence a wide shift like this. Um, um, one thing, for instance, if you can see the top left snapshot here, um, all three of these snapshots have the same flood hazard input, so these are all LIDAR-derived depth grids. But in the top left where you see the orange points on all of the structures, this flood hazard in the top left only gets about eight of the structures wet. But through the census block approach, the area weighting scheme assumes a uniform distribution of structures, so it would actually count, it would uh, apply damages to a percentage of this census block here when in actuality the structure itself might not be wet. So. That's why we try to refine it as much as possible, especially in, in, a, in a response and recovery type of situation. And uh, the turnaround times are getting, getting a lot faster with enhancements in the model and uh, quicker methods to get that through. And uh, for instance, in the uh, bottom right here, you can see how this uh, depth grid passes through a home. And if you're calculating losses against a, a census block, 
it's going it's going to apply damages where in, in actuality a lot of these houses are outside of there sometimes the water floods in the streets which are a lot lower than the actual elevation of the house so we have to kind of take all of that into factor and lastly I wanted to talk um, real briefly on something that's called a decimetric mapping and we we've received this uh, slideshow here from some of our colleagues at the Pacific Disaster Center based out of Maui and we think this is one way that we could better the census block area weighting approach and um, what the decimetric mapping would change is so say for instance uh, as of right now we have a census block and we count a thousand people in that census block what the decimetric approach would do is apply land use land cover data and flag certain cells within each block as either uh, high density urban, low density um, uh, urban rural interface and then non-urban parts of a block and shift a lot of that population within a block to those higher density areas. And here's an example of of how they've used this at the PDC out, out in Hawaii and around the Pacific Rim, and they've actually they've really had a lot of success with this, and especially in in rural areas where you can see um, the shot in the top left is an example of census blocks in uh, in Hawaii, and so they're really long census blocks that go way up the side of the mountain, and um, so using traditional census block data you'd apply one population value for this whole census block. But when you look at the aerial imagery, everybody's down at the bottom, sort of by the coast. But this uh, land use land cover data should have, it shows that trend and, and can help you shift those populations to where they're actually at based on land cover land use data. And then an example of their output here is uh, in the bottom right, this is a, a decimetric adjusted population grid where those populations are actually moved to where the land use dictates that, that type of population density. And here are some examples of uh, traditional census block distributions for Maui and Oahu. And then when you hit the next slide, this is the decimetric adjustment for these populations. And um, so you can see in Maui, they all moved down to the coast and then some higher density areas and the same over here in Oahu. And then um, there's the uh, total population distribution on the census block level and then decimetric. All uh, one, one shot so you can kind of see the comparison here. And same thing for Honolulu. So these, these shifts can all still remain within the census block, so you're not actually moving population outside of the, the traditional census block boundaries. It's just kind of a subset that's, that's a little more refined and accurate within that block. And here's another example where sometimes we have larger census blocks like here in the bottom left, but then when you uh, uh, use the decimetric approach, you can actually refine those populations to a much smaller, more detailed area.
which is a totally different aspect than what we've heard earlier today. So she's going to give us some information there on some work that she's done, particularly for her county. Hi. Um, I work for Snohomish County Public Works, the Surface Water Management Division. So we are primarily interested in the flooding aspect of HAZUS. Um, we also support the Emergency Operations Center from a GIS standpoint during a flood fight. Um, the work that I'm going to present today uh, we did in conjunction with TetraTech, and um, Ed Whitford, who you'll hear from after me, is um, equally responsible for this presentation. Um, to give you some perspective of the study areas that we'll look at, Snohomish County is just north of Seattle. You can see the red dot on the map. That's where you're sitting right now. As the um, crow flies, the purple box is the Sauk River. It's about 60 miles from here. The two southern boxes on the map, the orange and red one, are about 30 miles from here. The population of our county is just over 713,000 people, and we have about 283 designated FEMA floodplain river miles. So we have quite a bit of flooding potential in our county. Um, Going to give a description of the, uh, each of the study areas. The Sauk River, which was the um, purple box in the northern part of the county, is um, both the Lahar and gravel bedded river. For those of you who've never heard the Lahar term, it means um, a volcano erupted and the river is now running through the volcanic ash. Um, so it's a very dynamic river and um, moves a lot. Erosion is a big concern here, probably more so than flooding. It has variable gradient with a mixture of steep gradient reaches and low gradient reaches. This river also has large natural log jams. We've been out there and we've mapped log jams a mile in length. It's pretty amazing. Um, the orange river that was, or the orange box that was towards the southern portion of the county is the Salton River. It's a dam controlled river that's heavily managed. It's fairly short in length and moderately steep in gradient, but this river has a huge flooding problem. And then the long rectangular box that was on the southern portion of the map is the Skykomish River. And we've modeled the upper portion of it. It's a gravel bedded river um, without glaciers currently in the headwaters. It has a steep gradient. Erosion is an issue here as well as flooding. And this is probably our most populated and most impacted river during a flood. It ha it's constrained by a railroad and highway infrastructure, which is a main thoroughfare both towards the eastern part of our county and, for many people, the eastern part of the state. Um, I want to give you some background on how Snohomish County has been using HAZUS. Um, it's primarily the driver behind our county's hazard mitigation plan for the earthquake and flood sections. Um, with the help of TetraTech, we recently updated and adopted um, a new version of it in 2010. For the 2010 update, we used 
a level two plus analysis, meaning that we updated the general building stock, um, incorporated depth grids where they were available, and updated the user-defined, um, or did a user-defined analysis. Um, I've been told our assessor data was pretty good, so um, that was incredibly helpful. Um, for this plan, we used the 100 and 500 year scenarios, and it was run countywide. Um, we ran it on the regulatory floodplains at that point, and um, it was run in MR5. Um, for what I'm going to continue this talk, we wanted to go beyond what was done for the natural hazard mitigation plan, and we had some leftover money from the grant that we were using to fund that plan. So we said, what can we do differently? Um, we looked at the three areas I described previously, and we imported them into Hazus 2.0. And um, we wanted to expand on what TetraTech had done for the 100 and 500 year scenario. So we had heard that we might be able to increase our accuracy by moving our user-defined facilities from the centroid, which is the assumption that we made in the first model, um, that the structure was located in the centroid of the parcel, to the actual location of the primary building using um, aerial photography. And we also wanted to explore the impact of using multi-frequency depth grids. Um, so we looked at depth grids for two, 10, 50, 100, and 500 year events. Oops. So to give you an example of how we move the centroids, here's a, just an aerial photo with our parcel lines on. The red triangles are where our structures were located using the centroid approach. Um, we move them to the blue triangles. In some instances, it's hardly at all. Other instances, it moved a great distance. Um, in each of the study areas, we moved over 90% of, um, of the structures. The second thing we did was we, looked, we wanted to look at the depth grids. And fortunately for us, we have a flood engineer on staff who um, can model and heck GeoRAS and regularly outputs depth grids. So I have a whole bunch of depth grids to grab from. So we, we chose these areas because they were readily available from work that we had previously done. We had had an FCAP grant in the Sauk River to develop a flood control plan and then the Salton and Upper Skykomish depth grids were developed through our deform mapping with FEMA. And for those of you who, got, who don't get to work in the flood world that often, depth grids just map out where water is expected and its depth for a given flood frequency. And I um, wanted to show you the ones that we used. For the SOC, um, don't pay too much attention to the legend. But the blue areas are deeper, while the red, air, red or orange areas are shallower. And as expected, as you move from a two-year to a 500-year event, water gets deeper and spreads out across the floodplain. Um, here's our Salton River depth grids, the same series, two to 500 years. Same thing is going on. And I should mention that this does not consider dam failure in the hydrology model that was used to develop these assumes no dam. And here's our upper Sky River 
depth grids. Now these may look a little funny at first glance to you, and I'm going to explain why. Um, the two 10 and 50 year depth grids um, assume that there's a levee in place. And you can really see that location on this straight part in the 10 and 50 year event. The problem with that levee um, is we have witnessed through these events that it does have an impact on the flooding. But for the deferred mapping that we did with the 100 and 500 year event, because it's not a certified levee, we couldn't take it into account. That's why you get that sort of yellowish, orangish, red lobe in the 100 year floodplain. And you can see it sort of works itself out due to um, overtopping in the gold bar area in the 500 year floodplain. So it's a little bit strange, but these are the depth grids I had to work with, so we ran with them. Um, before I go on with the results, I want to caveat it by saying, I believe that the input that we've put into this model is probably the best that we have at this moment. However, I've not been able to calibrate it to actual um, data. We have several departments in our county that collects damage assessments after events, along with other organizations such as the Red Cross and sometimes FEMA. But we just never get all the data together to come up with good estimates overall. And um, I think in doing part of this project for the Natural Hazard Mitigation Plan and this, it's really brought that to our attention. So our Department of Emergency Management has taken the initiative to start um, collating the results from all the agencies afterwards. So hopefully in the future, we'll be able to check our model results better. So before I go on, I have to say the results presented here are for demonstration purposes only. We don't know how real they are. Um, and for those of you who have used the flood model in Hazus, you know the output. You can, there's so much output. So I've just picked a few that seem of interest to our public works department or our emergency management department. Um, as you can see, using multi-frequency depth grids, it does give you a variety of results in which you can use to sort of plan. Our um, solid waste department, when we, they know the flood is coming, sort of pre-stages their debris sites, the debris drop-off sites. So if we can give them an idea ahead of time how much debris they might expect, it's very useful for them. Um, as you can see, the sock has very little, and um, the Sultan, for some reason, is sort of flat between the 10 and 100-year events, but really increases around the 500-year event, while the um, upper sky, the green bars, steadily increase all along. In addition, we can convert those to truckloads of household debris. Uh, this is especially important to us as we um, put all of our trash on the rail lines and ship it out of state. Um, so it's a good idea to know how many rail lines we need, especially since one of the um, impacts post-flood is often landslides which shut these rail lines down in this area. And sometimes this, these debris have to sit at our debris sites longer than we'd like. So we need to make sure we can plan for enough room there. Um, we also can look at displaced households over different events. And as you can see, the shape of the curves for each, um, for each river is drastically different. Um, for some reason, the upper Skykomish, the 10, 50, and 100 year results are similar. 
while um, the Sultan kind of increases during that period, and the Sok, which is probably our least populated area in the county, of course, doesn't have that many displaced households. And similarly, we can plan for individuals seeking shelter. Um, again, it's kind of interesting to see that the upper sky, the difference between a 10 and 100 year um, event is pretty negligible, but if you look at the same time periods between, um, or the same frequencies through the Salton River, um, it, it in increases. Um, in looking at the user-defined facilities, this is the exercise in which we moved the centroids to the primary location using the aerial photographs, we expected to see a huge impact, as you can see from my results. And the numbers in the table aren't that important, so don't get bogged down with that. But in the Sauk River, moving them had absolutely no impact at all. In the Salton River, we saw a maximum of two structures changing. And in the upper sky, about six structures changing. And this is also reflected if we look at our dollar value and losses. Um, this, this result really surprised us, and I don't know how to account for it. I don't know if it's the nature of our parcels or um, smart land use practices that drive this. Um, it's going to take some more thought, but um, it didn't quite give us the results that we expected. Um, so before I go on, I want to address that I think Hazus can tell us a lot of stories. It can help us with um, our uh, mitigation and emergency planning, um, how to help solid waste deal with their debris. Um, but I also think that there's more to the story, especially in this area. And while my next slides are um, sort of titled limitations, um, I submitted those a week ago, and since then I've been giving it some thought. These are more challenges, and if there's other folks that have run the flood model and can help me get through these challenges or have some suggestions for me, I'd appreciate it. As Kevin says, you guys are the experts, and um, any help that you guys can give to help me tell the whole story about what's going on with our rivers and better communicate our risks and losses would be helpful. So the first one I want to identify is the debris. Hazus only estimates the household debris. Now for the Pacific Northwest, this can lead to a gross over underestimate as vegetative, vegetative debris is a large percentage of what's left at our post-flood dump sites. And it varies given the severity of the storm. If there's wind, we, get a, we definitely see a lot more vegetation. Um, also, in this area, our rivers are dynamic and powerful. And um, during flooding, erosion is also an issue. As you can see in these images, it's not unusual for them to take out roads. Um, so erosion, depending on the severity of the storm, can cause significant damage during our flood events. We see infrastructure damage, dikes breaking. We see homes and roads and rivers. Um, debris damage in agricultural fields not just impacting the crops that are there now, but sediment that gets left in the field that the farmer ultimately has to remove in order to um, farm again. Um, we have channel migration in this area, especially in the Sauk, which is a Lahar River. 
Um, the figure in this slide shows um, the main channels only. The side channels, if I added those, they cross the whole valley. But within a given event, our, our main channel can move up to a mile. Um, when avulsions happen, um, it causes considerable concern in that they isolate people and property, they have the potential to take out roads and structures, and they abandon current river channels. This is a big deal out here. Um, lastly, and it's been said numerous times in this conference so far, is the population data. Um, our county has grown 17.7% since the 2000 census. Um, and it's still growing, even the, given the recession, approximately half a percent each year. When this happens, we give out a lot of building permits. And about 5,000 during the um, pre-recession era, and since then about 2,000 a year. Now, I can't speak to how many of these are in flood-prone areas, but a 17% increase in population is huge and probably leads to some underestimation in our results. So the conclusions that I want to draw today are that the multi-frequency depth grids help show a range of scenarios and could provide help in resource and mitigation planning, assuming model results can be confidently calibrated. However, we were surprised with the second thing that we chose to explore, that moving our user-defined facilities to actual locations did not have a significant impact to the results in the Sox, Sultan, and Upper Skykomish study areas. Um, other things that we could use to enhance our models is really work on generating first floor height. Um, maybe we can do this through elevation certificates, site surveys, generating contours from LIDAR or our assessor's office photos. We're also collecting pictometry image, the imagery right now. Um, and possible uses for the model. We need to wait for future floods to calibrate our model results. But if they if they work out well and produce reliable results, we have depth grids available to model all the other major rivers in Snohomish County. And it, I think it would be a worthwhile exercise. This doesn't take that long. And if we, can, if we can find a way to come up with reliable results, it would be a huge opportunity for public information to support benefit cost analysis of mitigation grants, um, look at risk-based analysis of capital projects, risk assessment, develop preliminary disaster assessments, and aid in our planning, in particular mitigation, emergency management, coop, and debris management. Now, I know we're not getting into the questions, but these are some of my favorite flood photos. And I want to direct your attention to the center. Um, the, I probably should have put this picture with the vegetation debris. Um, this is one of our major bridges in, over the Snohomish River in our county. And these cherry pickers orient the trees during a flood so that they don't impact the infrastructure of the bridge. And this is the amount of debris that we're really looking at during a severe flood.
I see all of you that are up in heaven.